All right, so some quick announcements before we get into it. First, we're finally releasing our Philosophy of Christopher Nolan Part 3 video on YouTube this Saturday, February 17th, and we're going to be doing an AMA for the first hour it's posted, so please come hang out with us, ask us questions at 10 a.m. Pacific time. And finally, thank you so much to those of you who already responded to the audience survey in the description. Uh, really appreciate you guys taking the time to do that. We still need a few more responses so that our sponsors can know what you guys like, so if you have the time, really appreciate it if you guys take the survey linked below. It'll take less than a minute of your time, but it helps us out tremendously. And now on to the show. Hey everyone, welcome back to Show Me the Meaning. Show me the meaning. <laughs> <laughs> My name is Jared. I'm joined here again by Ryan and Austin, and today we're doing something a bit special. So in our Gattaca episode, we actually skipped the mailbag because after our Get Out podcast, which is actually one of my favorite ones that we've done, we got an influx of really, really insightful, interesting emails. And uh, thank you, thank you everybody for sending these emails because they were really exciting, really thought provoking. And that's why we're actually dedicating a whole audio file to Mailbag for Get Out. So this is Get Out Revisited, where we're going to talk about uh, all the insights that people sent us and their questions. So without further ado, let's get into the first question. So we're going to be paraphrasing some of these. Uh, we're going to not be reading the whole email because some of them are very long. So uh, if we don't really read your email in its entirety, I apologize. Some of you just had so many really interesting thoughts and were, uh, you know, we just don't have time to read them all in their entirety, but we'll hopefully get to the good stuff. So this first one is from Jake, and we actually got a number of emails of people pointing out something that we did not mention in the cop scene. So Jake actually says two things, but I'm going to focus first on the one thing that a lot of people pointed out. He says that part of the reason Rose was so eager to play the hero and tell off the cop is because that way there would be no record of him being out that way and traveling with Rose. This is partly why when Rod goes to the police station, they just ignore him. So once again, Peel metaphorically shows us that sometimes under the facade of white liberal values, there's actually something darker and more sinister that serves to perpetuate racism rather than address it. And then he actually goes on to say, in a way, Rose was, per this is during the cop scene, he says, in a way, Rose was perpetuating an environment that allows racism to thrive by denying Chris his own agency because he clearly just wanted to do what the cop was asking. Rose's eagerness to play the hero takes the focus off the theme of systematic racism, the police structure, and puts the focus on white upper-class liberals trying to protect their ally status to the point where it silences the black community and these issues of systematic racism just go on within the black community largely just go on within the black community largely unnoticed because as long as white liberals feel good about their personal morals, they can ignore the systemic power structures that allow racism to persist. So first of all, yes, thank you to everybody who uh, emailed us talking about that thing that we did not notice within the cop scene is that perhaps there was a greater motive to Rose uh, kind of bringing race into the discussion with the cop is just to make sure that it's not in their database. So I'm curious to you guys, uh, does that revelation make you read the scene any differently? Well, I, I, my question, my follow-up question to all these people is, is why did they call the cops to begin with then? You know, if she, if she's this, you know, maniacal, uh, you know, person, what, like, like why, why, why would they have to call the cops? Just because just they hit a deer. Why not just, and she's worried about a paper trail. You know? Oh, I guess I kind of presumed that maybe the cop just drove by. No way. I mean, they're out in the middle of nowhere. They hit a deer. It was clearly like we called a cop just because we wanted to be safe. Well, it's you not. Know? I mean, I think it's a fair assumption, but I don't think it's a crystal okay. clear. Right. But but yeah, I, I, 
I, th- I feel like we would have seen yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, that does you know? seem like it could be a little bit of a poor strategy on her part if she's really trying to eliminate a paper trail. But maybe the idea then, and I don't have the ultimate answer because I'm just going to try to just go with this and play devil's advocate. But maybe the idea would be that they didn't think that it would require any sort of scanning of IDs or anything like that, but that rather she would just call. Um, she was the one handling everything, and it was just to like report, hey, there's a deer here. Get someone out here to clean it up. Like, not that big of a deal. You're telling me this this criminal running a a secret brain uh, uh, operation uh, doesn't doesn't know the laws and, and people are irrational. Well, either way, I don't know. <laughs> e- either way, even if the cop got their IDs, put it in the system, and then uh, Rod went to the police and said, "Hey, my friend Chris has been kidnapped," and they look into their system and they said, "Yeah, it looks like Chris was on his way to his girlfriend's house, just like you said." I mean, how would that? raise alarm to the police like well it would just be like one one thing to say okay well at least you're telling the truth about something i don't think they thought that he was lying they thought that he was just crazy especially with the whole sex slave thing (laughs) yeah yeah real quick because like literally seven people or something like that emailed the exact same thing about the elimination of the paper trail i just wanted to give him a quick shout out john dave barry jake jake and hugo so uh there were two jakes in there and you guys all were like what about this? Because apparently this is now – this is like a common – what would you call it? Fan theory that is on like Reddit forums that people are talking about that, oh, maybe that's another reason, you know, just another layer to this whole thing that she wanted to eliminate the paper trail. But I will say that if if that were the case, I think it could be there in a very subtle sense. I, I don't I don't personally think that that is in the forefront of the text. Um but it could be there. But if that is the case, if that were in the forefront, I think that would really detract from really what's going on in the scene, which is Rose playing the white superhero that she's trying to save. So yeah. she's overcompensating. And then the important factor is you have obviously the cop who is acting in a discriminatory manner. You have uh, a black male who is the representative of like every black male in America who is just being obedient because you don't talk back to cops and you don't do that sort of thing. And then I think what's really just being highlighted is that tension, you know, whereas and then Jared pointed this out too. Rose can say, oh, this is bullshit or whatever. She can cuss. She can be aggressive. But Black people are trained that you don't do that because you can get shot, even for just like turning your back and walking away. So I think I think that would detract from the social commentary, which I think is the primary point. Well, I, I think that Jake, at least one of the Jakes, brought up a good point in that it actually works into it. Yeah. And I, I, I think that it can be both. I mean, I think I'm more connecting with Ryan's point to the fact of like, well, why did they even call the cops in general? And even if they did have a paper trail what would that really achieve? I mean, if she was really so concerned about not about hiding the fact that Chris went to her house, then like, why would she allow Rod to know? I mean, I guess to the point, like maybe she knew that, oh, okay, the cops don't believe black people. And I I guess I could see that. But uh, yeah, I think Jake, yeah, he says Peel metaphorically shows us that sometimes under the facade of white liberal values, there's actually something darker and more sinister that serves to perpetuate racism rather than address it. So it's not only that we see this power structure play going on, but it's that she's actually using white hero, white liberalism framework to hide her more sinister agenda. And and to our point about how this movie does so well on multiple viewings, like the first time you see it, it's the same old story, like we just said, like you know, <clears throat> racist cop, you know, uh, and whatever. And then uh, 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 and then the second time you see it, you're like, oh wait, shit, she's you know. Th- then you get this take 
uh, from all the Jakes and stuff that it's like, oh, wow, she had all this this other thing was mm. going on, too. Yeah. yeah. Okay, sweet. So this second one is from, and I don't know how you would say this, but it's spelled like cake. So is it cake or is it, does it have a cool pronunciation that I'm just uh, unfamiliar with? If so, I'm sorry, my friend. But um, there are two really intriguing questions. So first of all, can I, I'm just going to call this person cake. Is that cool? Or, or can we agree with that? Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's spelled it could, like cake. It, it looks it, like cake. It I think be, it's it, called it could cake. Be, it could, it could be, a be a nickname. So cake <laughs> says uh, that he or she is a black American from California, but that is currently living in Japan. So he or she had a very interesting uh, kind of perspective on this uh, in two different ways. One had to do with probably the one that was the most heated or the most engaged with topic from our episode, which was about would you or would you not tell your parents about the race uh, if you were in an interracial marriage? And Cake's answer was absolutely yes. You let them know. Basically to avoid uh, a guess who's coming to dinner type of scenario. And the reason is because people tend to just presume that you're dating a white person in a white culture if you are white. And so this idea of introducing a black person would automatically be met with a sort of disorienting experience. And so you absolutely do that. And I would say that we got this similar response from about three or four different people through email and also through Twitter, a couple of individuals that I had some really lovely conversations with um, that all said, fuck yes, you tell them that the person is white or that the person is black if you're in an interracial marriage. And I thought that was really interesting. What do you guys think about that? I didn't really think it was too controversial. I kind of thought we were all on the same page, yeah. that it is something relevant and it is something important. I found that uh, especially the people of color who emailed us had really interesting insights into how it affects them personally. Uh, actually, if I could just read more from Cake's email, he uh, he's actually a black American living in Japan. And he says, if I ended up seriously dating a Japanese woman, I would hope her parents knew that I was at least not Japanese before meeting them. This element of surprise could create uncomfortable, unfavorable, unintentional, awkward or even hostile impressions, which could be avoided. Um, now, granted, he's talking about in Japan, and I think that, uh, once again, the cultural dynamics in Japan versus white America is is pretty different. But, yeah, I, I think that that's one of the reasons why the scene is really interesting, because... On the one hand, we think that Rose is being super benevolent and being, you know, the true non-racist by saying, like, why would I tell them that you're black? It doesn't matter. But I think that a lot of the people that have emailed us have said, it. oh, no, it does matter. And uh, it matters to me as a person of color, not me, Jared, but me, the pe uh, people who emailed us, because um, they've had experiences in which, you know, like they've had really uncomfortable interactions and stuff like that. So I, I, I found that really interesting. And I, I'm actually, it was actually really nice to hear that. Um, it was nice to hear that, I guess, I guess that my speculations were justified in a sense. Yeah. And there was even one, one gentleman that sent us a lovely photo of him and his girlfriend. And, um, yeah. and he, he was, he's a Latino and she is white. And I guess her parents, had a bit of an issue with them at first, and he talked about how 
how important it is to to actually make those things clear at the outset to avoid that kind of scenario. Obviously, they have worked through it and they've they've got things. But he sent like a lovely photo. It was really touching. I got teary eyed actually from a lot of these emails from people saying, you know, like like I wish that I could have just contributed and and we knew going in that we were we were coming at this from a limited limited perspective because we're just three white dudes. Um, so we knew that. But the thing that's so lovely is that we were able to kind of at least listen to voices in the black experience and then hopefully now rearticulate them so that there is more of a representation on what we were talking about. And I think the thing that that surprised me the most that I didn't even really think about was this idea that everybody just presumes that the person that you're with is white. And it isn't until you – and they talked about that the, the look on people's faces when they introduced their interracial uh, or, or their, their mixed race uh, – couple or their their relationship to to family members and stuff like that and you can see the look on family members faces of having to like reorient and be like oh that you're black or oh this person's white and i guess maybe because i grew up in an, in a household that is quite liberal progressive that that would have been trying to to uh, exhibit a sort of like post-racial or colorblind view on things because I dated uh, a, a few different black girls and I've dated Hispanic girls. And so like, I mean, my mom's of uh, got some Native American in her. She's of Native American descent. So I don't know. She always tried to be like, she, even though it's a very small percentage, um, she was always like, you know, trying to, to be sensitive to, to mixed race uh, issues and things like that. So maybe I was even blinded by my own upbringing in that sense. But I thought that was really powerful. Yeah, so I actually want to read an excerpt from the email that you're referring to. Uh, this The gentleman's name is Jose. He says, Unfortunately, in our society, I believe that it is a must for any interracial couple who seeks to have a life together to uh, tell the parents, is what he's saying. I'm a Mexican-born male who is currently dating a white Oregon-born woman. Her parents knew of me and accepted me and agreed on the friendship. However, once we became a romantic couple, their attitudes changed. They began to tell her that if she dated me, she would be subjecting herself to being treated like a minority. In their views, she would be forfeiting her privilege as a white female in America once she was seen with me. Not to mention that they believed that our children would be called mutts and would have, he says, would have to true identity to pull from. I believe that her parents are not literal racists themselves. They are really nice people and have eventually grown to accept me in the relationship. I have with their daughter. However, I do believe they are part of the problem of systemic racism. They were able to see how minorities were treated and how the system was against people of color. I think that they could see a clear line that ran down the middle of the system. And because they were in the winning side, they did not do anything. Yet, when one of their daughters fell in love with someone who was on the other side and ultimately would have her go on to the other side, they began to voice their concerns of how broken and racist the system was. I find this really interesting. And I think one of the things that I find interesting about this is that so her parents voiced or Jose's girlfriend's parents voiced her concern about how she'd be forfeiting her privilege. And first of all, I want to I want to hear from you guys. Do you think that that's true? And is it racist for them to point that out? Because what I'm kind of one of the things that I've gotten from a lot of these emails that we've got that we received is that this whole thing is so complicated you know, like when we say s systematic racism, I think that like even in a sense, I, I have to be careful when I'm saying this, but I think this is a perfect example of how like white people are not subjugated by this systemic racism, but in a sense, they are still they still are responsible. They are afflicted by it. They're still responding to it. Like they're even if they're trying as hard as they can not to perpetuate it, it is this disparate power yeah. structure that 
that like even they can't overcome. So I guess my first question to you guys is that is our Jose's girlfriend's parents are they right? No. So you don't think that she's going to f- that she'll forfeit part of her white privilege by dating and marrying it's 2018 a baby. Oh, come on. Really? <laughs> yeah. I do. I mean, I I I maybe what 40 50 years ago they might have had more of a point you know like when it was way more of a cultural systemic more of a systemic problem than it is today uh or just ingrained in you um so yeah and but i think that now like the the the, the outliers that would believe that and i don't know maybe i'm too optimistic but i think that what do you think the nation's changed you know it's not perfect but it's changed a lot i mean i think that that everything is ultimately conditional or contextual, like literally everything. Like I think that you can't say yes or no outside of conditions. So I'm going to say yes, and it's conditional. And what I mean by that is it's different. So I bet when she is on her own and she's a white woman who just walks into a bar without Jose, she would not necessarily be forfeiting her white privilege in that instance because no one identifies her as being in a mixed race relationship. However, if she walked into that same bar with Jose, I think absolutely there would be a, a, a sort of notch or two taken off of her status. Um, especially, like, what do you mean? Well, like, especially if she walked like, into a bar specifically in would happen to them? Uh, a certain area that happened to be more inclined to um, certain negative stereotypes towards Latinx people, right? So I think that it, that it depends on the context, but I think absolutely that that she would be forfeiting some of her white privilege in those contexts. So, I mean, you're saying, though, that, that, that this hypothetical racist small town that hates Latino people, that, that if they walked into a bar there and maybe if they lived there, then she'd be... But, but you really think that that's like like uh, has to do with America at large? You know, I mean, is that a, is that a greater representation of a of what you feel like all of America well, I, is? I, I, I would mean, never I like say that, that, I would that, never that, use that's a, the the like the racist small town where everybody hates Latinas Latinx people. I I wouldn't want to generalize or be as um, absolute as that. But I would say that I guarantee you that there will be contexts uh, and situations where she would walk in. And she would be affected by her negatively affected by her status as being on the arm of a Hispanic man. Absolutely, a hundred percent. Yeah, but what? Well, not, but well, not only but that, but specifically like, so, though. So, so, so like, t- what is okay, happening? Okay, to her? so for example, we say that a lot of the people of color who have emailed us have said that they would like people the the parents that they meet if they're meeting white parents they would like to be. Uh, made aware that he's black so they don't have like a really uncomfortable situation imagine being a white woman coming to school for the first day walking your kid into school and the kid that you're uh chaperoning is has a different color skin than you have is like half hispanic that's gonna get you some weird looks you know Mm -hmm. that's gonna um you know so really what we're talking about in terms of losing your status on the white privilege spectrum it's you're getting weird looks that's kind of the the grand arbitrary you know I don't think it's that simple. Um, I think that weird looks is an easy way, an easy entry point to understanding this, but it does put you in this camp of other, you know, of of somebody that doesn't fit this comfortable narrative that a lot of people have in their head. You know, like when when people see a, a white woman, you know, bringing her kid to school and she's and and the kid is Latino, it just brings up questions like, oh, is that kid adopted? Uh, is is you know, like it, it would probably even bring up 
you know, a, a potentially well, offensive and, and questions. Even, like, even asking, is that kid adopted? That automatically presumes by for some people, is that kid unnatural? And that right. and that that is definitely an issue. And now some people right. and then right. some people but, would maybe even go to like the oh that kid's adopted. How sweet of you. You took a poor black baby and you gave them a house, which again is an issue. So there are all kinds of issues that can come up even just from that weird glance. And if I can just read a quick email from Catherine kind of to this, she yes, says please. um she's you know she is uh herself she is black. Uh she's mixed race, but obviously as she points out that when you are black and white then you are just black in old money as she says. Um which I thought was was <laughs> was interesting and really accurate. But what she says is, when you are a minority, especially living in a white majority area, people who haven't met you assume that you are white. That means that every time you meet someone new, you have to watch their face as they adjust their mental image of you to account for you for your real and imagined differences from what they were expecting. This is the case regardless of whether the person is a racist or not, but it is obvious and it does happen every time. And as you can imagine, it can be particularly stressful and or upsetting when you meet the parent slash grandparent of a close friend and you see that racism splash all over their face. And I think one of the things that's so important is she said, even if the person is racist or not, what she means is even if this person isn't like a card-carrying KKK bigot, nevertheless, there's still an implicit bias. And that implicit bias is something that I think this film is really addressing as well, as well okay, as all so the just so we're all on the same so we're on the same page. Like, like when you say – you brought up the thing about the interracial couple going into the bar and then they go down a couple notches on their white privilege. It's really – we're talking a lot about like social niceties and, and people's kind of – we're talking about psychological stuff more so than, than like, oh, you know, the – Hey, get out of here, uh, 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 colored person. Well, that's that's the point, is that racism isn't just about uh, somebody who actually actively hates somebody. I think that what the film reveals is that racism can be a structural, cultural thing, and that it's not as simple as, oh, I hate you know such and such minority. So, like, yes, we can talk about just social niceties, but those niceties have much bigger ramifications than simply like, oh, I was uncomfortable for a right. second. Right, and and I think if you really start thinking at the at the affective level, the more you have those negative, instinctual, habitual, emotional, and affective reactions to somebody, if it, the more you do that, you're building connections in your body that then will force you to view the world in a way that is less inclusive and that is less embracing of difference and then that will produce social effects and political effects when you when you broaden that out beyond just the individual and personal so yeah maybe at the individual level maybe it's something that's just like oh okay well an adopted black baby interesting but if you broaden that sentiment out and you deepen that sentiment out over epics or decades or whatever that's when it becomes a systemic problem and i think that's what is being pointed out by these individuals not just and and i know this is for ryan because you're a libertarian you're tend you tend to think of things more on the individual and personal level and it's hard to think in terms of the structural and so there is there's a little bit of like a translational issue that needs to take place between the kind of the more libertarian perspective on this and the sort of more structural and systemic. And so that's, I think, where there can be a little bit of a push and pull. It, 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 I feel like the difference is, is that like, like I mean, I totally uh, acknowledge the systemic issue. Like I, I, I totally get that. Like, yeah, if you're in an interracial marriage, you are different 
than most people. You know what I mean? And that can cause issues. It's more just the 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 level of importance I give that, you know, to okay, you know, I yeah, if if that's me, I'm in an interracial marriage, fuck everyone. I don't you know, like like maybe that's just a personality thing, but uh uh Or maybe maybe you have the privilege to be able to say fuck everybody, but maybe the black person or the person of okay, color doesn't right, have but, the ability but, to say But fuck I'm saying that if I was in an interracial marriage, you know what I mean, with you know, like I would hopefully me and my partner would say, all right, I get that everyone, when I meet them, they don't get that I, you know, that, that, that they have to readjust their brain. How important is, you know, how am I, how much am I going to let that affect my fucking life? You know? Oh, I mean, yeah, you, you can talk about like, okay, you know, but isn't that part of the equation that we're talking about? Like, like in terms of this being an issue, being a problematic issue. Because it all started. We're when, talking about a movie that explores these things. I mean, whether or not somebody well, no, should we, be. We, we, the, the question started out with, 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 are the parents, are Jose's parents right for, for freaking out about, or for, for being cautious about their interracial marriage? It depends on, like, what do you mean by right? Like, are they, like, are they morally right? Or are they sort of, is there an accuracy to what they're saying that that would be a, that, that would be something that would be a phenomenon because I would say that that yeah that that is something to worry about but here's the issue is it something to worry about in the sense that then you don't date the person because of that which seems like that was that was their concern it came from a place of fear of the other rather yeah. than I think what we're talking about is the recognition that actually what they hit on was something interesting because it does it does kind of put her in a compromised position and so there is something really interesting that that maybe Jose and his girlfriend will have to deal with is her sort of bearing some of that burden and and losing some privilege herself now obviously anyone who's listening right now that's a person of color is going to be like oh boo hoo you know now a white person has to deal with a little tiny bit of discrimination yeah you're absolutely right i get that i'm i'm not trying to say that but i think the point is to recognize that yeah there are social ramifications for being in an interracial marriage and the reason and the reason is because of racism mm -hmm. So I actually want to clarify what I was saying earlier and by going into another question about how I think that this next email is a good way of understanding just the all-encompassing, very disparate nature of racism, that it's not just, um, you know, individual people who, um, you know, like hate certain minorities. And it's also something that is not only, I mean, in certain cases perpetuated by white people, but also things that people not of color are also um, subject to the system. Uh, so this is an email from Jackson, and we got to be careful here because this is a little bit of a touchy subject. But uh, I want to go. I want to go right into it because fuck it. Jackson says, "Hey guys, love the pod. But one thing I noticed about this past episode was the fact that you didn't have any black people on the episode. Not saying you have to have a quota, but like reviewing Mean Girls, you had to have a woman on the pod. You're gonna miss out on some stuff without a black guest." Did enjoy uh, whichever of you talked about black pessimism, though. Sorry, setting this two days after listening. I'm bad at remembering y'all's names. So this is very interesting. So first of all, I just want to say, like, you know, Claire has been a writer for a long time. I mean, we plan on bringing her on later. We didn't just bring her on because she was a girl. Although, you know, like, I'm not going to say that I'm gender blind like I am colorblind. Of course, that's a thing. I will say that uh, someone on Twitter did say, hey, it would be great if you guys got a black person on the podcast. I reached out to Greg. Uh, Greg is uh, the host of Thug Notes, and he was busy doing like a college visit or something like that. So then, and the reason why I'm bringing this up is because after that, after Greg said no, I found myself saying, now wait a second. 
Somebody just emailed me saying, hey, it would be nice if you guys got a black person, although I agree with that. This was also like a, a day before we were about to record, and I started to get a little concerned. I started saying to myself, like, oh, no, do I need to get a black person on here in order to protect myself from criticism? And then I watched the movie Get Out, and I said, wait a second. Isn't that, in a sense, if I just started you know, calling all the black people I know and saying, hey, I need your blackness on this podcast in order to protect myself from criticism, in order to give my opinion more validity or able to give the podcast more validity, then isn't that the racism that the movie is kind of is is criticizing in a sense that in that sense, I would be collecting a black person and using their blackness and their cultural experience for the benefit of the podcast. And so it's a very blurry line. And so when I say that, but at the same time, the way that structural racism can also affect white America without white America necessarily like, you know, hating black people and perpetuating it is that like. You know, some people might get very outraged by the fact that we don't have that representation on the podcast. You know, some people might say, like, oh, my God, you guys are racist for talking about the black experience in America while only having white people on the podcast. And so because of that concern and because of that fear of being called out, of being, you know, product of outrage culture, I am then incentivized or potentially incentivized to you know, look at a black person or judge a black person based on the color of their skin, which is very much like, you know, and then I'd be just like the white liberals that the movie is criticizing because because of the I would be saying like, oh, my God, I need a black person by virtue of their blackness. You know, I need to, in a sense, collect them, not unlike the army. Yeah, you'd be trying to earn social and I think capital that simply by the exploitation of, uh, you know, black capital. Um, right. And that's not to say that I don't think that a black voice on the podcast would have been great. I mean, it would have been. And, you know, I reached out to, uh, you know, the most active member, active black member of the team. But after that, after Greg said he wasn't available, I was like, OK, I'm not. It's just a, it's just like a, a sticky situation, because after that, I started to feel anxiety. Exactly. Yeah. And, and that and that anxiety is how. In a sense, the structural racism perpetuates it even among white people, because now I feel anxiety as to not seem racist, just like the Armitages, you know, uh, overcompensate by talking about Obama because they don't want to seem racist. So they'll say I would have voted for Obama four times. And in the same way, I was feeling pressured of like, oh, my God, I need to protect myself and I need to protect the brand from racism. And I got to get a black person on that podcast. But. That's not appropriate. Well, that's the structural At least I think. I'm, impinging I'm, I'm, power of racism that will affect exactly you or me or Ryan or someone who is a sort of white liberal, right? Is that we are still susceptible to this. Like like I, I think that there's this interesting yes. way – this interesting thing. People are like – they're so quick to be like, I'm not a racist. I'm not a racist. You know Donald Trump. I'm the least racist person you'll ever meet. Listen, I will tell you straight up right now. I'm a white dude right now and yes, sometimes I am racist. Sometimes I'm not racist, but the 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 power of my white privilege and my participation in the white power structure isn't something that I can just relinquish in 30 years of living, right? It's something that will take years and years and years and years, and I'm probably on my deathbed. I will still have an implicit bias. It is something that is so ingrained in me 
that it will take a very long time and a lot of effort and a lot of retraining and relearning and listening to the black experience to be able to, to overcome. I would love to say that I would love to eradicate any form of racism or implicit bias whatsoever, but I'm not sure that it's ever going to happen. But here's the one thing I do wonder, Jared. So I get that feeling. And we, we talked about this, remember, because we were like, what are we going to do? Are we going to kind of go forward with this or, or how are we going to do this? I wonder this, and this is going to be a little bit technical, but so there's something called speech act theory. And in speech act theory, there's a distinction that's made between the locution, the illocution, and the perlocution. The locution is like the word that is said, the illocution is the intent, and the perlocution is the sort of material effect, right? So let's say the illocution that you're worried about is you don't want to just simply kind of participate in that same brand of white liberal progressive racism and that would be the intent but what if nevertheless and and i don't know i feel like we might need to get another set of emails from some people to help us think through this um what if we just had that anyway and we just brought a black person on anyway and the the effect of that then was to say yeah we we might not be entirely pure in our motivation, but nevertheless, we're still now allowing there to be a platform for diversity and greater representation of voices. Would that be a better way or a good way or is that a comparable way? Or maybe it's not good or better. Maybe it's just another way. Do you see what I mean? Does that work? That sort of no. I, I see what you mean. I don't. I, yeah. I mean, it's it's an interesting conundrum. I don't really think that there's a clear answer. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. No, I, 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 and that's why I'm, I'm really glad that we got this email and why I think that this conversation is so fascinating, because on the one hand, yes, um, I I mean, I reached out to Greg. I wanted a black voice on here. Once somebody mentioned it, I said, yeah, that would be a good idea. But at the same time, it's when that anxiety hit, when I said to myself, oh, shit, we're recording the podcast tomorrow. What are we going right. to do? And then when, when, when that what are we going to do thing, like, and I think maybe that anxiety is kind of perhaps like my own racism but like it's the white liberal brand of right. racism that the that the structure has ingrained in me and i think that that's something that's also perpetuated through you know like society's attempts to not be racist it just seems like structural racism is a giant catch 22 yeah that's what i was going to say it's yeah. just uh snake eating itself you're like yeah and if you do you then if you don't no but it's fascinating and um yeah, I mean, this is why this is why the Afro pessimists would say it's not enough to be an empathetic ally, but rather you have to be actively against whiteness. And they don't mean like like be a self hating person that walks around constantly like wearing sackcloth and ashes, like oh I'm I hate myself, but rather being actively opposed to the white power structure, opposed to whiteness as such, and the sort of transformation, if you will, of the sort of ontology of of social relations as such. Yeah, I guess I just when people say that I'm curious like what what is a practical like what is a practical action that would that would fall under that umbrella? I feel like I'm out of place to speak on what that would be, so I would say if we're interested, you know, read some stuff from Tanahasi Coates. He talks about the idea of reparations as being something that would be important and he doesn't mean that just in terms of like a cash payout to people, but you know, like just recently the president of MIT admitted that they got their funding uh previously in the past because of selling slaves. Harvard I think recognized that uh as well and so what they did then is they've created programs to allow for more inclusivity with regards to um 
black students and then also like funding for black programs and things like that because they realized that they are an institution, a powerful white institution in this country that was literally built off the financialization or the financial uh, profitability of, of selling black slaves. So maybe stuff like that. Um, I, but I don't know. Read Frank Wilderson. He's got some articles out there. Frank Wilderson III, Jared Sexton, Ta-Nehisi Coates. These are figures that I, I think uh, on Twitter and stuff like that that um, there's a guy named Lester Spence who is uh, a writer who writes for Jacobin Magazine who writes about these issues as well. Cornell West. Um, not all these guys are in the Afro-pessimist uh, camp, by the way. But they they would all have different ideas. And I think that's the most important thing is to listen to the black voices that are telling us what's it like to live outside of whiteness? And I think only then can we even understand what it means. Did you know that Cornell West was in The Matrix Reloaded? I did. <laughs> <laughs> I rewatched the movie like recently and I was like, and, and like, you know, when I was in high school and I saw it, I didn't know who Cornell West was, but now watching it, I was like, wait a second. <laughs> uh, and you know what? He's uh, not the worst actor in the movie. He's pretty decent. Although he does have the worst line yeah, in the movie. Yeah, no, right. But... I was going to say, too, and I feel like I just listed a bunch of dudes, too, and so forgive me, but uh, Angela Davis, um, and there are many, many willi- uh, women, uh, people of color also, that need to be represented, and I, I want to, and this is maybe my white guilt, but I want to make sure I'm at least being honest here, that there are voices out there that aren't just dudes, but I'm a dude, so that's one of my implicit biases. Help me. All right, so let's move on. we got more questions. So this email is actually directed to Austin. Uh, he said, we talked briefly on Twitter. Oh, sorry, this is from Buck. He said, we talked briefly on Twitter about the black male perspective of the film. He has a couple thoughts. So one, the cop scene. The main thing I was thinking about during that part of your conversation was that black people just do whatever the police tell us to do because we're afraid to escalate the situation. The reason it was a big deal was that Rose had the privilege to go against what was being asked of them by the cop and the officer complied with what she wanted. Not doing what you're told as a black man just makes cops angry. It isn't that they are all consciously abusing power. It is that they think of us as being dangerous or suspicious and they see Rose as just another citizen. It feels just as bad for us when white people swing in to save us uh, while not realizing that they are the ones cops will listen to. So that's his uh, thoughts on the cop scene. Now for telling the parents, he says, yes, she needs to tell them. I've been in the same situation. I, uh, In fact, it happened just a week after my girl and I saw this movie together. I got the same confused response from my girlfriend when I asked her if her parents knew I'm black. The problem is that, again, these things aren't usually conscious, and she has very little way of knowing if her parents would have issues with me or not. Even the my man parents are a problem because they are still going to treat me like an other and not as an equal. We need to know because our white friends and significant others just assume their parents would randomly express every thought they have had toward a group of people who they are never in contact with. And then I actually just want to read the entirety of what his overall takeaway on the film is because I think it's, it's very insightful. He says... The film's lesson is one that expresses the insidious nature of the typical white liberal mindset. At the end of the day, telling me you don't hate me because I'm black doesn't make me feel any less different. The people in this movie love black people. They aren't hateful towards us. They want to be us. They're envious of the stereotypical traits that have been placed on us. The blind guy believes black people to have superior artistic talent. It isn't just the eyes. Just like many people believe we are better singers and musicians, we've suffered more in this country, so we often have more soulful hardships to make art about, but we aren't better at anything. We don't want white people to envy us and compliment us constantly because that just shows that you believe the positive stereotypes and are continuing to make us things instead of people. The idea that we are natural athletes is the same idea that leads to cops to think uh, we 
we can handle more pain when they won't stop beating us. Being woke isn't fun. It's not a fad, and it shouldn't be something to be prideful over. It only means that you know and care deeply about what is really going on. That should make you sad and should make anybody guilty when they personally know they aren't doing as much as they can to make the world a better place. I consider myself to be a feminist, but I don't run around bragging about it because that means I am a man who knows and acknowledges that as a man, I benefit from a system that oppresses women every single day. That shouldn't make you happy. And running around telling women stuff you think they're good at doesn't express solidarity. Um, yeah, I th I, I, maybe you can speak more about your conversation with Buck, but I think this is a really great email. I mean, it was a really it was a really short conversation back and forth, and he said that he just had these thoughts that he he would love to articulate. He said, "But I can't do it over Twitter, just because Twitter obviously has limitations with regards to characters." But um, yeah, I mean, I, I I really appreciate that. I think the thing more than anything that I am trying to learn to be better at is to listen to other voices that are different from my own, especially minority voices. And then to also be self-critical and self-aware. And and I know that I don't always say this, but I hope that I can just say this sometimes and that people will remember that I, I truly do want this to be the sort of um, hallmark of everything that I say and think and do, but that I am I am perpetually learning. Like I'm not fixed in any of these ideas that I espouse. If they warrant transformation, I hope that I will always be willing to listen to another experience and transform them. Um, I'm an academic philosopher, which comes with its own pitfalls, but one of those problems can be that I don't tend to latch on to things and believe things solidly, but I tend to experiment and to explore with concepts quite a bit, especially because of the type of philosophy that I gravitate towards. So for me, um, I'm able to kind of like bandy about ideas, which can be an issue because um, maybe I'm noncommittal on things, but also at the same time, I think, and I hopefully... Hopefully it will allow me to always be open to someone like Buck or someone like Jaren or or various other individuals or Catherine who reached out to us and, and expressed some things about the first person black experience that I would never be able to understand like from my subjective perspective. And so I'm I'm just glad that we're a part of a platform where people can actually engage in this kind of conversation. And I hope that people realize that when we're talking to – we're not talking as fucking authorities. Like we are – we're like co-participants in – trying to figure shit out and except on a respect our authority yeah. <laughs> well just the, yeah the, the the mission statement of wisecrack is hey let's think about big ideas but what the fuck do we know yeah and, and, and what that then means is in the age of social media it's what the fuck do we know help us you know like it obviously you don't have the same level of of social media capital if you're just sending an email or a tweet versus you know a platform that's going to get like a half a million or a million views but still there is a sense in which there is a reciprocity here and um and yeah so i i loved getting getting buck's email um and there was another gentleman and i can't remember he might be listening but on on twitter we had a, a long back and forth there were a couple of guys but um i just want to say thank you because again i fuck man i got i got a lot to learn and a lot to think about and a lot to adjust in my own life and and the more i can listen and hear these types of things the more it will help me segueing back to the uh previous email we had just read um about the guy living in japan um he said at the end we 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 didn't really get to it but he said like like why why is the japanese guy in the in the auction you mm -hmm. know if you know if this movie's what is that saying 
basically. What's y'all's interpretation? Yeah, that's a really good question. I never really thought that much about it. Uh, but well, like, I mean, if this is an indictment on you know white liberalism, but then there's just a random Japanese dude who's basically doing the exact same thing as him or as the, as the rest of them, is it saying that this is an international problem? Is it saying it's a Japanese problem? Is it saying no? It's I, I mean, I, first of all, I, not only white people. I mean, if we're if we're talking about this. Uh, idealistic perspective of white liberalism i mean there are non-white people who you know are are still part of this culture right yeah not only white people in terms of caucasian of european descent not only that skin tone benefits from white privilege and um asian individuals in the united states of america from japan china south korea singapore have had a much better Um, opportunity to assimilate and to be welcomed into. And so I think that that actually is, I think that was very intentional to have the, uh, the Japanese man ask the question about, you know, what's it like to be a black man in America now? Is it advantageous or disadvantageous? So I think that that is a really intentional move to basically show that, oh, even a, a Japanese man can become a part of the liberal elite, but it's, but it's harder for a black man. So Cake also, uh, he linked us to a Reddit thread in which apparently uh, Jordan Peele on a podcast was asked about this. And uh, just to give his answers, uh, just so people know. So he said, it's a callback to the Japanese guy at the end of Rosemary's Baby. Peele wanted to indicate that this is a big international thing and not merely localized to this small town. Uh Also, apparently the Japanese actor is Peele's friend. Two, the Japanese actor's broken English heightens the awkwardness because he has to ask questions more directly. And three, uh, Peel said, yeah, it's like, you know, a uh, Japanese old billionaire dude comes out and wants to buy a black body. So uh, that, that's what Peel said, at least. But, you know, me and Austin are hardcore death of the author bros. So uh, <laughs> so he doesn't exist. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's just dead, bro. <laughs> All right. So this next question is from Dylan. I didn't remember hearing anything during the Get Out discussion about the cameras. The fact that the camera phone flash is the only thing that gives some amount of power back to the black people that have been taken over by the rich white people would seem to be a metaphor for the fact that the only thing that seems to be actually getting attention lately for police misconduct toward black people or systematic racism is that it's now being recorded on phones so it can't be denied or lied about. Interesting, right? Yeah. It's super interesting. I don't really have anything other to say than like... Cool. You know, I think, uh, yeah, Dylan. Sounds about right. Dylan, because I, I, I did wonder about that. I wonder, uh, you know, like, is there anything relevant about the photos or the flash? And uh, I was never really able to come up with something, but I really like Dylan's interpretation. It's a cool device. It, it, I mean, it makes sense that it would take you out of a hypnotic trance. Yeah, it would like right. shock you. It would shock you back into a different state. Um, I, I also think that maybe the idea of the flash as being jarring but um, but yeah, no, I think so the flash could also – or I'm sorry, that the film itself could also sort of be a type of flash that is supposed to shock the audience to thought, to wake you from your uh, hypnotic state. Uh. You know, I mean I don't know if that's me just kind of pressing something too far, but that maybe that's another thing because the flash kind of awakens you from your hypnotic state. And maybe the film itself is a type of flash to shock the audiences to think, to have the kind of conversations that we're trying to have like on this podcast. Man, that's meta meta. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ding, Fuck, ding, dog. ding. Uh, so you mentioned uh, Jaron or Jer- uh, I'm not sure if it's Jaron or Jerome, but um, he had a very interesting email that I'd like to, uh, to uh, read. He said, as someone who was raised in the wealthy suburbs and went to an almost all white 
school, I was essentially socially white. Sorry, he's he's black American. I was essentially socially white in as such as the white monoculture doesn't have anything to do with actual race. And it's simply that the educated, proper suburban American is almost universally white. So we as a culture associate associate those traits with whiteness. What this creates in those that are in the community and are socially white but not Caucasian is that it ends up filling a role that is stereotypical but also foreign to them as they don't have an understanding of the general racial experience that the typical person of their race would. I ended up being a token black guy who would often act out the idea of blackness even though growing up fairly well off in white suburbia. I had essentially the same life experience as my peers had. What you end up being is the character of Logan in the movie, a person that stands out because of your race not just to white people, but to people of your own race as well. You don't belong with old white people simply because you look different, but also you don't belong with the young black guy who socially you have nothing in common with. The white monoculture essentially body snatches you and you are caught in between cultures. Around white people, you are somewhat of a novelty, a far less sinister version of the tamed savage stereotype. Um, and then he goes on. So um, if, if I can just, so this, this email, uh, really touched me because uh, one of my best friends growing up, I had a very similar experience. Um, and uh, although I don't really talk to him about his experience, uh, it made me think a lot about one of my best friends when, when reading this, but I thought this was super interesting. Mm. Yeah. I, I mean, I grew up in the suburbs too, and um, it, it is interesting how it is a monoculture. I love that, that term. So um, it's something I might have to steal uh, for future uh, purposes, but uh, yeah, it's great. Great. Oh, Great. Just another white guy stealing something from a black guy, right? Um, <laughs> no, but it, it's a great term, and yeah. I think it actually does accurately describe the suburban life. And that was something that I sort of was intimating with regards to the similarities between this and uh, Stepford Wives, is that there is something really strange about this cookie-cutter embrace that smothers monocultural suburban American lifestyle and it's not i don't think it's just particular to america i'm sure other other nations and other cultures have experienced this historically as well but um it is amazing how powerful it is you know and you sort of suspend any sort of individuality to become just another body absolutely and i think that we actually talked a little bit about the the tuness of the black soul which is uh was it wb du bois oh, yeah, du bois yeah the du double consciousness yeah, yeah. Uh, we talked about that in our philosophy of get out video, which I think uh, is speaking exactly to what he's uh, talking about. Yeah, yeah, really interesting stuff. I mean, all in all, these emails were really amazing. Uh, Twitter too. I mean, fuck, man. I think we're we're just trying to struggle together, and that's one of the things that's so amazing about this film is that this film is able to it's able to introduce the black experience to uh, a couple of white dudes from wherever the hell we're all from, you know. Um, and and then the other many millions that watched the movie and. Um, and that's why, I mean, even seeing something like Black Panther is going to be so interesting to me because I don't know shit about the comics uh, at all. But, you know, this film is being marketed as a very Afrocentric experience. And so stuff like that, the more that we can experience that, the more we can see Moonlight, the more that we can watch films that introduce us to these minority opinions or minority voices or minority perspectives, um, the the more readily available will we have the tools and resources to be able to um, encourage and stimulate difference 
All right, we're going to go ahead and wrap it up. Uh, thank you for listening to this special mailbag episode. Uh, since Get Out is a uh, darling for the Oscars this year, we thought, you know, fuck, why not just make a whole another episode where we talk about these things since we got some of the most thoughtful emails we've ever gotten. So um, if you want us to do more of these kind of things, let us know. Uh, the more emails you send us, the more incentivized we'll be to do stuff like this. And this was a real pleasure. And thank you so much for sending your emails. And that's about it. So thank you guys for listening. And we'll see you next week. Peace out, film fans. Later.